Welcome to the Hindu's Parley podcast. I'm your host Jacob Kosh. Germany has shut down the last of its nuclear power plants. France, the nuclear powerhouse of the world is struggling to replenish its stock of aging reactors. With solar and wind power becoming more popular globally, there are questions on whether nuclear power with its attendant concerns on cost and safety remains a relevant options for a fossil free fuel future particularly in india to discuss this i have professor r srikant professor and dean national institute of advanced studies and head of the energy environment and climate change program and dr rahul tongya senior fellow center for social and economic progress where he leads the energy natural resources and sustainability group Thank you gentlemen for you know joining the Hindus Parley podcast and thank you for taking time out of your schedules. So our discussion is you know centered around uh, the role of nuclear power in the context of India's uh, energy mix and you know let us just have a, a discussion on what the future holds as far as this concerns. So I'm going to start with the uh, professor uh, Srikant. So you know the the news point is that you know germany has officially shut down the last of its nuclear uh, reactor plants country like france you know which used to dominate uh, as far as nuclear reactors is concerned they are struggling to get into their second you know to replenish their nuclear reactors so globally what do you think is the outlook for nuclear power especially that you know solar and wind power are becoming far more popular so just let's begin with your thoughts on this question what are the global prospects today for nuclear power all uh, right uh, thanks jacob i think that's a very relevant question uh, but one thing is there that uh, after lot of, what has happened in the last two years particularly after the ukraine war has started i think nuclear is seeing a huge renaissance uh, even in europe and uh, usa see china anyway if you look at the rest of uh, if you look at asia china was anyway going full blast on nuclear even uh, uh, korea which basically there was a change of the president and the new president has changed their energy policy and said that they want to get uh, increase korea share uh, i mean the nuclear share in korea electricity back to 30% by 2030 and therefore you know two of their largest reactors which were stopped by the previous president though they were constructing uh, the same reactors in uae they had stopped it inside korea but the new president has again now restarted those reactors and the construction of the reactors and they are going to get completed soon so therefore korea is going full blast even japan which you would expect uh, uh, should have completely shut down they are completely shut down after fukushima but now they are actually restarting the reactors they already restarted 10 reactors after actually doing a lot of uh, many years of uh, inspection and uh, you know upgradation of their safety systems etc and i think the plan is to basically start 10 more reactors so 10 reactors are already operational and the reason that japan had to do that because they were otherwise dependent either on imported coal or imported lng both of which basically the prices had shot through the roof and therefore it was becoming unaffordable so japan china korea three big uh, con- industrialized countries are going full blast in nuclear and if you look at uh, other than germany if you look at what has happened in uk uk has done a study for their future electricity requirements and they have actually published a report which basically says that without nuclear at scale you will not be able to basically decarbonize the electricity sector in uk as well so that's why despite the cost overruns they are facing in their first plant uh, called hinkley point 
they have gone ahead and placed a sort of repeat order for the next plant, which is also a coastal plant on the site of an existing nuclear power plant. They have placed a repeat order and because it is a repeat order, the cost overruns and uh, time overruns will come down and of course the delays are also due to COVID partly. So therefore, this is what is actually happening in uh, these countries and if you look at again USA, USA now basically after many years of uh, stalling, the uh, one of the, the their most modern reactor in Georgia has now actually been commissioned. So it's going to get commercial maybe within six months or so. And uh, now, but nuclear in USA is always going to be now in the form of advanced reactors, which is either small modular reactors or other forms of uh, molten salt reactors, etc. And uh, the US government is pouring money like uh, in billions of dollars, uh, either in the Inflation Reduction Act or in the CHIPS Act that has been enacted in 2022. Two major acts have been uh, have incorporated provisions to enhance the share of preserve the share of nuclear first of all by giving huge subsidy to extend the life of their operating reactors from 40 years to 20, another 20 years. So therefore, a huge subsidy is being given to them in the form of a, a tax credit. Plus, what is happening is for the advanced reactors, I think uh, there's they are giving billions of dollars of funding, including you know investment tax credit, etc. And the very important thing that US has done is. The USDOE has done a study, published a report last year, that shows that 80% of uh, 349 coal plants that they have studied are actually uh, either operating or retired, can accommodate small modular reactors. So therefore, that report is out. Actually, we have been commissioned by DIE to do a similar study for India. On small modular. Yeah, small modular. And we have almost completed that study, going to uh, submit very soon in another final report in another three months. Okay. So therefore, there is a resurgence, but it is going to be, I would say, more in the form of small modular reactors, mainly because that uh, people have been stung by, particularly in Europe and US, by the long uh, cost overruns and time overruns. Sure. So we will come to, we will discuss that question in a little more detail. But before that, uh, Rahul, I'd like to ask your thoughts on, do you share uh, this kind of optimism on the future of nuclear in the global scenario? So before I jump to that, I just want to observe, you opened with Germany. And I think a lot of people worldwide are still struggling with this question of, is nuclear power green? And to some people, nuclear power is not green because of other reasons, but it is absolutely low carbon, even when you look at life cycle. And it is firm power. So one of the reasons that there is strong potential, a lot of countries are saying that, look, nuclear would be good to have in the mix, is because it is firm dispatchable power, while wind and solar, as we know, are intermittent or variable. And what do you do if you get days and days of a no wind spell, which UK periodically does get? And so, well, some people say, well, batteries will be the answer. Batteries are very expensive. And they also have an environmental impact on, on size, materials, and so forth. So there's no free lunch is the first sort of unfortunate reality. I think a lot of scholars and people who care about the environment are just concerned where Germany shut down plants prematurely before end of life. So from an environmental perspective, you know, all the carbon in the cement's already sunk and yet you've shut it down. And so that seems to people uh, premature and it would be the same sort of thing for India or any other country. Using an asset, whether it's a car or a power plant, till its end of life is probably the best thing you could do for the environment, unless something can displace it entirely. 
So that's the second sort of thing. So from the global perspective, uh, the first question or driver is, do you have an alternative that would let you say, I don't need nuclear? And as I mentioned, most wind and solar is VRE, variable RE. And therefore, how do you get your firm power? In a lot of countries, they moved away from coal, but they went to natural gas. They didn't go to renewables. And I think that's a very important point that all of us need to keep in mind as we sort of around the world, people say, well, you don't need coal. Well, the question becomes, if not coal, then what else? And so renewables are not quite ready to end coal in India by any stretch. And nuclear, in some ways, is a better fit as being a large baseload. Uh, well, baseload may not be the right term now. It's firm power because okay. you don't need to run 24-7 in the middle of the day. In fact, you can uh, lower your output from other fuels when solar is high. But you do need it much of the day and there's seasonality as well. The two other things about nuclear one of them, I think, has also been solved, which was nuclear resistance. People just, I don't want it. So that's driven by fear of safety. That's driven by fears of proliferation or some other concern. Some of those remain, but a lot of that has been diminished because partly post-Ukraine, but also because the nuclear industry has realized and their designs are now moving towards what is called passive safety designs. So Older designs required active cooling, active pumps, while you can now have systems that even if the power fails, these things will gradually and gracefully control temperature, waste heat, and, and shutdowns and things like this. The worst sort of accident in history, Chernobyl, was a design that will never get repeated again. So that was a reactor that lacked a containment dome. Yeah. And it had something which in technical terms is called positive void coefficient. What that means is as soon as you sort of, for whatever reason, overheat or you start to heat up, let's say you lost your pump, pump failure, then the reaction rate actually sped up, oh. which is sort of the worst feedback loop you could have. Now, no plants are designed with that. So as soon as you start to heat up, they should slow down. Uh, after a point. So these are all sorts of things that are standard in all the designs that are out there, including Kudankulam. It is a different Russian design than the RBMK of Chernobyl. And so safety has certainly come a fair amount of way. Um, is anything failed safe? No. But then you have to put it in context where coal mine disasters, you've got transport disasters, you've got pollution, local air pollution. I mean, like I said, there's no free lunch. The third challenge, and this is the kicker, is cost. And that is an area where nuclear has yet to fully prove itself, partly because of cost overruns, partly because of other things. But now we're looking at completely new designs, SMRs potentially, small modular reactors. And therefore, there is a belief that this will address the cost structure quite a bit going forward. So we, we can come back to what happened with costs, what does it mean, and so yeah. forth. So at this, because we've kind of uh, you know, gone into this uh, this aspect, but I mean, then we also would have to consider uh, issues. For ex example, example, spent fuel. I mean, what do you do with spent fuel? That is, you know, where do you store it, etc. And there might be the case that you know people are slightly less fearful of nuclear power, but that doesn't reflect in the in the current embargo that we face in India. In the sense that you know the nuclear, uh, I mean, nuclear liability continues to be the major sticking point behind why, for instance, the French reactors 
you know the edf uh, reactors haven't really uh, you know come into india so uh, rahul if you could just weigh in on that and then after that uh, professor srikant you could also uh, uh, you know discuss this issue so spent fuel and concern i mean the concerned still remains that this thing is dangerous which is why i don't know i mean that 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 could be that that is probably the reason why you know peop, uh, the french want or other countries who are supplying reactors to india want you know some kind of indemnity against uh, you know uh, uh, you know against protests or what against plant failures all of this adds to costs so then is it really a worthwhile future then so nuclear liability is one of the sticking points and i think here a couple of points are worth clarifying or understanding the nuances first why is this a problem why does the government need to step in because nuclear risks are the type of very low probability very high impact so when you put it together the private sector just doesn't want to touch it because they don't have reinsurance mechanisms to handle this type of thing typically so worldwide governments have been a backstop you've got the price anderson act uh, in the us that really let it going uh, capping the liability upon the private sector now something similar is typical it's not unusual and necessary the catch is for india they need to come up with a norm that's equitable that does not distinguish between public and private sector because if you just sort of say well you're the private sector you sink or swim on your own that's what private sector means i think is a bit misleading so if the government is willing to backstop or uh, risk uh, financial liability upon public sector they should have similar terms available to all stakeholders now in terms of uh, sort of risk uh, for spent fuel i think that's a completely different thing spent fuel is something that is real it has a cost but it's a finite cost that can be planned for and you can then take a call whether it's worth it or not an abstract sort of claim that oh it is a problem forever well then you need to have a supply chain planning that where do you store it for how long where is it stored for what's called a permanent repository the us has been struggling yucca mountain what they had as a facility never took off so other countries have more of a plan on what to do with it this is where technology can also make a difference it is there are designs in smr that would have less long term or transuranic uh, element wastes so there are things that can burn up some of the wastes or give you shorter duration shorter lifespan things that you can actually encase bury and then by the time that uh, structure or whatever uh, deteriorates by then it's lost most of its radioactivity and it's closer to background radiation levels so these are all things that are non trivial but they're also things that can be addressed in a scientific and transparent manner Th- these are still slightly works in progress dr srikant would you like to add to that i think uh, jacob that's a very important question about what to do about waste but one of the things that we have to realize is that the amount what is the amount that we are actually talking about if you look like a, at a plant like kudankulam for uh, operating one of those units 1000 megawatt at 90% plf what you require over a year is only 25 tons of low enriched uranium fuel low enrichment means around uh, below 5% so therefore you require 25 tons over an entire year when you compare that to coal coal you'll require 5 million tons approximately mm-hmm. so therefore the whole thing is and coal as you know basically produces ash and if you look at many of the power plants in the country there is huge ash ponds in some cases the size of the ash pond is bigger than the size of the plant and ash also contains many heavy metals 
which are also very detrimental to the water source and of course you have got uh, during summers you have got this uh, air pollution as well due to this ash pond so uh, i think rahul mentioned there's no free lunch so similarly if you look at solar if you look at battery now you had all these chinese panels you know basically which flooded india which are uh, till now what is going to happen to the waste because all these panels have a finite life because they all degrade and therefore you may have it installed on the ground but or in the building but uh, they are not producing as much power as they were in the beginning so they have to be replaced what do you do with all that waste so again that contains a lot of heavy metals well, there is an issue of yeah there is radioactive waste and there is of course this waste no, but, but these, now we can discuss yeah, that but, no, but you have to look at the quantity see the problem basically is the the advantage of basically uranium is its very energy density is very very high i just gave you the number of the 25 tons per annum and another thing is unlike uh, except for kudunkulam all other uh, our indigenous reactors we have adopted what is called a closed fuel cycle so what we do basically is that the waste that actually the spent fuel that comes out of the reactor that's again processed and whatever is basically radioactive material is left is taken out in some cases it is reused again so therefore by using that uh, material again and again we are able to reduce the amount of waste substantially now how much i don't know but basically the waste has been reduced and as of now all that waste is basically vitrified and kept in spent fuel pools uh, in the in in a few places in the country and us for example they have been operating uh, nuclear reactors since 1955 all the nuclear fuel that they have used till now in each of those reactors is stored in glass casks with proper uh, design lead lining etc they are all stored on site and therefore all their plants are designed to keep actually to store the spent nuclear fuel because they have a open fuel cycle they store it for uh, 60 years which is the life of the plant and good thing that has happened now finland is a country where basically the local communities have actually approved the uh, construction of a nuclear waste repository and finland incidentally on the same day that germany shut down uh, their uh, three reactors prematurely finland actually has restarted their uh, rather commercialized their uh, the oldest uh, sorry the the newest and the largest uh, uh, reactor in europe so therefore there is progress being made and i think uh, Uh, the ukraine war has taught many people that actually uh, if you don't want to actually have energy dependence on other countries you better basically look at uh, you know the base load replacement and without uh, uh, nuclear there is no other alternative for base load or for whatever it says 24 by 7 power uh, so, so then why so then just to come in on that so then why are people countries that want to sell reactors to india even after a deal is already fixed why are still they so concerned about indemnity accordingly yeah good question see that is the basic problem in this as studied the civil cland act of india the basic problem in that is that uh, it is not a question of money see the, if it is just a question of money you can account for it and basically as rahul said because these plants are to be operated by npcl the operator is going to be a government company so therefore you know that uh, already there are limits there is a nuclear insurance pool in india all that could be taken care but the problem in the cland act is it actually uh, exposes the supplier of components to various liabilities which are including criminal liability now that is something which basically no uh, western uh, uh, company will ever uh, accept so therefore uh, that is basically the sticking point and i think uh, uh, if those point and that's the reason that basically the people are asking to renegotiate because 
uh, you know, even in mindset, for example, accidents happen, fatalities happen, but it is not that the manager is prosecuted immediately. There is a court inquiry that actually goes into it. Is it an act of God? Is it a human error of the uh, of the worker or the supervisor? They try to fix the responsibility. And only when the responsibility is fixed, then they decide whether to go for criminal liability or not. But this act, unfortunately, has, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically created a condition that everybody is very fearful of actually supplying anything to India. That's the whole question. Other than residents, nobody is ready to supply any nuclear component to India. So, Rahul, I saw you raise your hand. Do you want to make a point? Well, just an observation that... uh, while India has a closed fuel cycle in design, it hasn't really happened all the way. And the jury is still out on uh, whether it will or should, because if you end up using imported systems, hypothetically, uh, then those would be based on lightly enriched uranium, typically, while most of our domestic reactors right now are natural uranium in the Kandu or Indu cycle. And the output of that has now plutonium that's usable from uranium-238, a fertile material instead of fissile. It converts as a nuclear reaction to produce plutonium, which could be used in a fast breeder reactor or uh, other sorts of appropriate reactors. You could use plutonium in the existing things in in a mixed blanket mode, but uh, those are not yet the bulk of what's out there. So... Again, like I mentioned, there's a whole range of technical choices in how you design your systems. Those are not the bottleneck for um, the challenges, which are more a systems planning, economic supply chain sort of problem, as opposed to a purely technical problem. And in fact, that actually leads to the other question, the other big question that we have to discuss is that, so I'll, again, Dr. Srikanth, I mean, India's whole nuclear Uh, you know, system, I mean, nuclear output system is premised, number one, on the fact that it it takes on ground the fact that, you know, we don't have enough uranium, but we go through a set of steps, ultimately, by which, you know, we can generate, we can use plentiful thorium. But rest of the world, wherever nuclear has taken off, wherever it is, you know, the debate that we've earlier had about the utility of people, this issue has, this problem has not been there. That is of the, uh, you know, scarcity of the raw fuel that is required. But now it's been so many years. I mean, we only got 7,000 odd megawatts of, uh, you know, nuclear power. And this was what we should have had in the 1980s. So now, now does this mean, okay, now if we want to stick ahead with nuclear, if we want to have it in a nuclear mix, should we revisit some of the assumptions under which nuclear the nuclear program has the civilian nuclear program has been supported so far or is it should we just go with the idea that we have already invested so much let us just stick on with it and eventually the fruits will come up at some point your thoughts first and then rahul thanks for the opportunity addresses jacob because this is something we have been studying in great detail and we are very firmly of the view that a country like india which has very limited growth potential for hydro. We are seeing what has happened in Joshimut, etc. Our areas where hydro potential is there are very sensitive. Hydro potential, there. is it? Okay. Uh, yeah. So hydro potential, is, see many countries, you can say I have hydro, so I can actually provide uh, something to back up for renewable. So the whole thing is our potential, basically hydro, the growth is rather limited because of the biodiversity and uh, R&R uh, factors, etc. And of course, the seismic factors in the Himalayas. But what I would actually say, since nuclear is what is the alternative, if you want to get rid of coal, 
And the reason we can't get rid of coal so quickly is mainly because, as you rightly said, coal we have got nearly 210 gigawatt of capacity and produces 73% of electricity of India. And it's actually grown in the last two years, whereas nuclear is only around 3.2%. So if we have to decarbonize, we need to go nuclear in a big way because solar plus wind, yes, the growth potential is there. We need to, uh, there is a potential for batteries. But the problem with uh, uh, nuclear, as you say rightly, is that the growth has been very, very slow. There's no doubt about it. Therefore, what we firmly believe is after a lot of discussion within our institution with various people who are very familiar with the DAE, how DAE works, etc., the business as usual cannot continue. One of the major reasons that actually growth of nuclear is hindered is because we have a monopoly. And the first thing that has to happen is the civilian nuclear program now should, I am not saying it should be privatized, but at least you should allow other government companies like say NTPC to come into nuclear on their own because the scale of growth required, if you have to reach net zero, the scale of growth required, you know, I got, I mean, let me put out a number, something like my, my feeling is that we should reach something like 100 gigawatt by 2050, so 30 years. So it's a combination of small modular reactors and large reactors, but it cannot be done by one company. It has to be done by multiple companies. And I think at this point of time, the government companies, particularly the power generators like NTPC, should now start getting into this. The government has said yes, and the government, the Atomic Energy Act has been amended to allow the central government companies to get into this. But unfortunately, the DAE is interpreting this amendment in such a way that NTPC can enter or Indian Oil Corporation can enter, provided they have a joint venture with NPCIL, which is very detrimental to the overall growth because NPCIL has got actually a huge challenge on its hands. It has got several projects which actually funds uh, public funds to the tune of, I think, approximately 2 lakh or more than 2 lakh crores are already sunk into the ground. So if 2 lakh crores has been sanctioned or sunk into the ground, I think any company should now focus on basically getting, getting those projects completed on time, which is 2031-32. All those projects are delayed now, and I think that is where NPCL should focus rather than trying to tie it up with uh, NTPC or with Indian oil because this technology of light water reactors it's not with NPCIL. NPCIL is only the pressurized heavy water technology. So let them focus on that and let basically NTPC, Indian Oil Corporation, which are basically in fossil fuels, they have to do a transition. Let them basically, they have enough capital, project management bandwidth, good relations with the state government, multiple state governments. They are the people that should be allowed to go into both the small modular reactors and light water reactors with imported technology. So, so that's saying they should actually be buying uh, LWRs and small module reactors from, let's say, EDFs or other countries. Is that what yeah, you're Yeah, many countries, many countries. Okay. Like, why not Korea, for example? Because the reason I talked about Korea is because they have installed this 4 into 1400, the largest uh, unit size, I mean, the second largest unit size. And a recent competition in Poland has shown between French, American and Korean. The Korean reactors are the least cost in terms of... Uh, and they have proven their ability in UAE to go into a greenfield, into a new country which doesn't have a single power plant, and uh, I mean single uh, uh, nuclear power plant. They have proved their potential. They have got tremendous experience in Korea. I think uh, their costs are much lower uh, than the American and French uh, designs. And Poland has now also decided to go besides American also to Korean. So therefore, we should try to, in addition to, we should not depend only on Russia alone. We should try to diversify and for that, basically, the CLND Act is very important, number one. 
amendment is important. And the second thing, of course, to allow these companies, the large uh, energy companies in India to go into these collaborations on their own. They have the money. They have the state government relationships. They can acquire land. They can put up, let NPCL focus on PSWR. Let these other government energy companies go into their own way and set up nuclear. And of course, safety is ensured because the regulator is over everybody. So the regular automatic yeah, is over everybody. So safety is ensured. And last but not the least, the fuel include and the waste, radioactive waste, are both actually the property of the government of India. They don't belong to even NPCIL. So therefore, these, the safety of the fuel uh, is also ensured. So therefore, I think we have to go towards this this uh, concept. That's a good point. To yeah. Go for uh, you know speedy. So Rahul, do you want do you concur with these views in general, or do you think there's some more radical revisitation of the assumptions of under which India has been going about nuclear is is required? I think it's inevitable that you need to be open to a range of options. And I think the key word here is portfolio. Energy, especially electricity, but energy overall, is not going to be one thing that solves all our problems. It's going to be a mix of supply side and even demand side. That's something we don't talk about enough uh, as a country. Even within supply, it's not that if I just add solar, all problems are solved. I mean, think about it. Years ago, we used to lament, oh, if only solar were cheaper. Well, it's pretty darn cheap now. That doesn't solve our problems. Oh, if only batteries were cheaper. Well, they'll get cheaper over time, but that's not enough. So we need a portfolio of technologies within the nuclear sector and outside the nuclear sector. And what these need to do at a design level is interplay well. So here, one of the things that France's reactors do, but in the US they don't, is what is called load following. What that means is, can you lower the output of a nuclear plant in response to grid conditions? So let's say demand is low, solar is high, wind is high. Then I need less of something and should it come down? Well, obviously how much it would need to depends on the share. If nuclear is only a few percent, then that's noise. It doesn't matter. But at some point you want technologies that are more flexible. This is the same ask that we technologically should be doing out of coal power plants. They will need to operate in a portfolio with wind and solar. It's not coal versus wind and solar. It's a little bit of all of the above. So similarly, to re I mean, let's let's give us some context. Today, nuclear is what about three percent? Little lower in capacity, little higher in generation share uh, of Indian electricity. Say we want it only five to ten percent only, which is still modest, relatively low. But our base of electricity is still going to grow something like three to five times, seven times uh, by the time we net zero. Let's use twenty seventy as a hypothetical target uh, year. So 50 years from now. So just to go from 3 to 10 and have the base grow means we need a whole lot of growth of all of the supply options, including nuclear. Now, maybe nuclear doesn't make it for economic reasons or whatever. But if we are serious, then we'll have to say, how do we scale it up faster? And I think, I mean, this is again just an opinion. In general, maybe part perception was that NPCIL is a government entity. Who cares what it costs? Who cares whether they do or don't perform? They're not going anywhere. They haven't had the same pressures that a commercial entity uh, who's stock listed, who can go bankrupt, whose uh, you know, people will be uh, replaced if they're not delivering in the same way. That pressure hasn't been there upon them. Partly it was because that this was a niche. But now if we step back, 
we want to really commoditize nuclear. By that, what I mean is there are materials and technology which are very exotic, esoteric, sensitive, hard to find. Yes, those can remain with certain stakeholders. But if you look at a nuclear power plant, especially today's design, the bulk of your costs and effort is really commodity stuff, cement boiler like steam so nuclear cycle then has a steam cycle next to it once you get the heat out you've got cooling towers you've got all sorts of things which are not quote-unquote rocket science and therefore can you segregate how we think about these get more players to do some of the other stuff create joint ventures create new entities who do this i think we'll need to look at all of these so that the likes of npcil ac or rnd establishments focus on the niches where you need specialized materials where you need specialized alloys things like that because if every if limited people are asked to do everything that's a recipe for slowing down okay so that means so just to, I mean, we've discussed this, you know, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a very broad way. But from what I understand is that, you know, what we're basically saying is that nuclear should always remain. We should not think about something like phasing out nuclear no, no, so, ever so at this point. Let me clarify. Your policy should be about enabling frameworks to let all technologies play. The value that nuclear provides of being low carbon, firm, reliable, etc. If those do work out competitively as having that value, then they will automatically grow. I am not in favor of targets that say thou shall be X percent. Well, what if something else came up? What if prices changed? What if technology changed? What if something else changes? Those are, I mean... In, in my view, the government or anybody shouldn't be taking technology bets per se, but policy should be about frameworks and enablement. That is where things like the civil liability or uh, support mechanisms, uh, all of these do matter. But uh, I'm neither saying nuclear must grow, neither am I saying that, oh, we must kill nuclear because it hasn't grown. So if nuclear didn't scale up to its potential, you could at one extreme say, let's kill it. But the other extreme you would, or middle ground would say, well, let's figure out why it didn't grow and how much of those are artificial constraints. And then if you fix them and it still doesn't perform, well, then its share will fall and fall and fall. So be but, it. Srikant, do you concur with, in the sense, do you think it's time that instead of every 10 years where we set up a new, more ambitious target, do you think it's, finally time that nuclear must be given some kind of hard deadline or is that is you know by this year you have to produce x rather than the current narrative it says by this year we will produce x should we have a hard deadline or do you think that nuclear the the, the way it is the i mean the, the reason for how it exists the reason for why it exists in the first place is something that we can india should never ever ever give up on what are your thoughts on that uh, Jacob, what I feel is it is a mix of the two. The reason is that unlike other technologies, nuclear has obviously got long gestation periods. And uh, and therefore, also basically the question of uh, safety is involved. And uh, uh, therefore, it requires some long-term planning. It cannot be just to start and stop. You know, it's not possible. But this is really long. It's been 70 years. So No, no. See, I will tell you. See, yeah. it's not. See, let us also be fair. Because what has actually happened, what U.S. did after 1974, and again, after 1998, was very foolish and stupid and short-sighted. Really has not worked 
in their favor at all. And it has been anti-climate change practically. So therefore, our program has dramatically suffered, but we have managed to hold on. And But one thing good that has happened is that the US 123 agreement gives it was a great achievement for us because what was happening before was that we were not having enough fuel to operate our existing reactors. So one thing good that has happened is after the 123 agreement and the successor agreements, the nuclear fuel suppliers group, etc., we are able to import uranium freely. And in fact, I think... Uh, all our, uh, I think nearly two thirds of our, uh, I think around 4,800 megawatt of our nuclear capacity is actually running. They are all under civilian safeguards after the one to three agreement. Therefore, they they receive, uh, they use imported fuel, and the imported fuel incidentally is much lower cost than Indian uranium because the sources like Kazakhstan and Canada where we get it from are places where the grade, the natural grade of uranium ore is higher, and therefore they are cheaper. So but we still haven't is, been able to make the FBRs. No, see, see let, let us come to that FBR separately. So I think you raised this point at the beginning. I think we'll answer. Let us look at where the world is moving. Nobody in the world is moving towards FBR. So we had that FBR vision because we wanted to be self-reliant in everything and we wanted to use our thorium. So I think that, uh, you know, that, that research work should continue the FBR that is the, under, you know, advanced stage of commissioning in Kalpakam. That place should continue and all that. That is all research. But what Rahul just... At this point, I just wanted to clarify for the audience that FBR is fast breeder reactor. Right. Which uses Thanks. plutonium fuel instead of uranium fuel typically. Yeah. So that, that part of research should continue. So and only it should be expedited if not anything else. But I think to really realize the full potential of nuclear power, you need multiple players on board. At this point of time, I don't think in India, private players will come into the picture because of various issues in the power sector, particularly payments issue, etc. I think it is the government that has to come in. The government companies are huge in the energy sector and they actually have the cash to basically invest because if India has to decarbonize, what will they do? So therefore, Indian Oil, NTPC, they all have this experience in doing multiple things. It is not technical. It is basically what happens before you start a big project. There are so many things that happen. Uh, that before a project actually construction starts on the ground and they are good at all those things and therefore those skills are very critical in India and also I firmly believe the small modular reactors are an essential supplement to the larger reactors mainly because what we have identified so far uh, is about a potential for 40 gigawatt of small modular reactors at various brownfield sites in the country and the reason this uh, brownfield sites are suitable for small modular reactors is Small modular reactors have contain a fraction of the uranium that is there in the large reactor. They have a lot of passive safety uh, measures. And therefore, what happens is that even the US NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has approved a small modular reactor with a what is called an exclusion zone of only 400 meters. So now the conventional exclusion zone is one kilometer, one to five kilometer, you have a natural growth zone. A large reactor has got several site-related constants for safety because there's a large amount of fuel there or either inside the reactor or outside the reactor or in the form of waste. A small modular reactor requires a fraction of that, multiple modules of small modular reactors with all these advanced safety features can be put at sites. We have identified potential for 40 gigawatt of capacity in brownfield sites because for nuclear to grow in a densely populated country, site selection is also difficult. And therefore this SMRs are the solution U.S. actually is going big blast on this and they are actually giving a 10% bonus in tax credits to anybody 
who puts up an advanced reactor in a closed thermal power plant site or a coal mine site. So I think these are the things that we need to do. If we do these things, the world is moving in this direction. And because the world is moving in this direction, you will have economies of numbers that you can produce small modular reactors, not in you know ones and twos and tens, you can produce it in hundreds. And that is when the economies of numbers will kick in, the capex will come down, the speed of uh, you know installation will come down because these are designed as products and the construction times are much, much lesser. And therefore the projects are time, uh, project overrun time, cost overrun will all come down. That is the way the future is moving. And this is the way that India should move to have this complement, this balance of both. And I think uh, this will happen eventually. And this is the only way, I think, as of with today's technologies, today's knowledge we have to decarbonize our coal-heavy power sector. I think um, we want to try and move away from the mindset that, A, I already know the optimal and the best technology and what we need. And therefore, it's just a question of throw enough money at it. There is still a lot of learning, as uh, Dr. Shrikant pointed out. Some of these things are evolving, especially new technologies. And hopefully we will not have NIH syndrome, not invented here. So we need both technologies to be willing to be partnered, whether imported or domestic, but also evolved. We have R&D capabilities, but we need to now enable them. And I come back to that. You look at the U.S., what they did with um, solar technology, SunShot. You look at ARPA-E for storage, where they actually said, look, I want to make this stuff commercial at 10x the price reduction. They didn't just say make it a little cheaper. So the targets that they do set are aspirational or supportive as opposed to you will be delicensed if you fail to do it. They supported it, including startups that failed. So we need that type of an ecosystem. That's how you get real innovation uh, more than just in a lab. You need it all the way to commercialization. So we need it for SMR. We need it maybe for waste handling. There's so many areas where things haven't been tried just because there was no incentive or support or ecosystem to do these sorts of things. So it's going to be a little bit of all of the above. That being said, it's not a blank check necessarily. So we do at the same time want to be mindful that, look, if it takes too long, then it doesn't help us for decarbonization fast enough either. So it's this intersection between uh, safety is a given. That's paramount. So assuming safety is met at a minimum, then you want scale, speed, and cost. Now, how much these trade off? How much can you reduce through innovation, R&D, learning, economies of scale? That's the real focus that needs to be. And I would strongly suggest that this sort of decision making should be taken in coordination with the current stakeholders, but not entirely with the stakeholders. Because if you just ask AEC and DAE to give a technology roadmap, it'll look different than if you had neutral but expert material scientists, supply chain scientists, etc., cetera, uh, to really lay out the landscape in the directions we need to be taking. Those are some great points, Dr. Tongya. So, in fact, uh, I mean, just wanted to, should, we should, we should take some lessons, I guess, from the way from India's space establishment is now going forward. I mean, recently we've had some, you know, some major policy moves in terms of, you know, opening up a lot of it to the private sector. Where now private sector technically can come and actually, they can technically build their own satellites, own rockets and use ISRO as just a launch facility. So the broader point being that, you know, you know, the space sector, which again was pretty much consonant in you know uh, with india's nuclear history you know they are 
I guess farmers. So we can take some lessons from the, them as is that a is that a good analogy? You think, Doctor uh, Ongya? Uh, Oh, I think it's a great analogy. No analogy is perfect. There are differences between the sectors, but certainly it's more at the mindset level as opposed to the operational details where it's a it's a good starting point. Operationally, of course, there will be differences, partly because of um, transnational issues, supply chain issues, security issues, etc. Sure. Yeah. So now that we are nearly at 45 minutes, so I just wanted to close with the other aspect of this question, which is that we've always been talking about supply i mean you know what sources whether nuclear coal solar what sources can be uh, improved or increased to increase supply but in india as far as electricity and power is concerned there is a whole big discussion about supplying the i mean ensuring that power actually reaches those consumers and this is i mean we ha we've had various problems and you know in terms of distribution and tnd losses etc so in this whole, in you know, in in this discussions of energy of India's energy mix, what kind of solutions or what kind of proposals do you think we need in terms of power sector reforms, distribution reforms, to ensure that okay, even if we are able to let's say improve upon on upon our supply, how do we ensure that the distribution is you know is scaled up and made more reliable and efficient? Doctor Tongya, you first, and then Doctor Srikanth. You've hit the nail on the head that if you look at the chain of the electricity system, there's generation, transmission, and then distribution, which itself could be split in theory between wires and retail. So we've unbundled for the most part between the integrated SEBs, state electricity boards that did everything, to now distribution mostly being separate. But within distribution, we don't have retail competition yet. So we need viable discoms and we need discoms that pay the generators on time, but pay all stakeholders. So these are two things where India has been struggling. And it's a lot more complicated because even though we have independent regulators that set prices, we don't have cost-reflective tariffs. We have entire energy policy of India, not just in the power sector, has been about social welfare redistribution. We have taxation differentials. We have price differentials. So electricity, you pay differently whether you're a household or agriculture or an industry and so forth. Even within households, you have slabs. So small consumers pay less, high consumers pay more. What we have not yet reckoned with is the tsunami of change that is upon us. This old system was costs plus, regulated, centralized. What will be happening, thanks to technology, but also some market-related reforms, is more self-generation. Rooftop solar is going to grow. We will have eventually storage become viable for end users themselves. Not yet there, but it's eventual. Then you'll have smarter grids. People are saying, why can't I do peer-to-peer -peer trading so I can give my surplus power to my neighbor and let him just pay me instead of going through the utility. So all sorts of things are possible. And we really need to be ready for that change. Um, and that's going to be a heroic task because markets are very good at efficiency. They are not necessarily good at equity. So we still need a role of the regulator in the state to ensure not just reliability. You talked about quality supply as being a need, but also how do we protect the poor? How do we protect the environment and so many other aspects? So every time somebody says the market will take care of this, I always point out there is no such thing as an unencumbered market. Markets still need good regulations. 
Dr. Srikant, you want to add to that? Yeah, okay. So I completely agree with the last sentence that uh, Dr. Tongi just made about, you know, good regulators. Unfortunately, what has happened is that though we have got an act which basically empowers the regulator to do a lot of things, because practically almost all our regulators, electricity regulators, come from the government. They're all excise officers. They actually follow the dictates of the government in terms of tariff setting, in terms of all this you know, ridiculous differentials that you have got, very complicated tariff structures. So therefore, we really don't have independent regulation. It's we've got regulators who are completely captured. Captured. So that is one of the problems that we have both at the central level as well as the state level. But why is that so? The, because the reason that the government is doing that is because they, it is a uh, sort of public good in India. So it's an ele- election, uh, you know, winning issue. So unfortunately, the regulator is supposed to depoliticize uh, the the water sector, the electricity sector, the transportation sector. Unfortunately, our regulators have failed in that task. And that is something I think the bureaucracy and the government should really ponder what they have done to the sector. That is one. Second thing is that while uh, let's look at the low hanging fruits. I have a student who has been working for five years on this DISCOM reforms. We have studied uh, uh, almost all discoms in the country and particularly southern region discoms in greater detail and what we actually find is that uh, even when you have a state like Karnataka for example you have got five discoms it's all unbundled etc unlike Tamil Nadu uh, but what we actually see is there is a great deal of inefficiencies uh, they really don't want, for example uh, none of these discoms have independent directors so therefore they are again in a closed circle their inefficiency is all hidden and uh, uh, so what we find basically is that the low-hanging fruit is to have public-private partnerships. And the reason I'm saying that is outright privatization is very, very difficult because we have had discussions with both Tata Power and CSC. They all say that, you know, for large states, and let's forget cities, let's not compare Delhi or Calcutta and Mumbai or Ahmedabad with, say, Karnataka or Andhra Pradesh or Telangana. So this, all these states have got large agriculture, agriculture consumers. And we can't even compare Gujarat with the rest of India, with Gujarat, 50% of the electricity is actually sold to industries, so which are, you know, can pay higher tariffs. So if you compare the bulk of India, I think what is actually required is more public-private partnerships. There are a lot of doubts whether after the Orissa debacle, whether this sort of PPP will enter the power sector. But I'm very happy to say that the OERC, the Orissa Regulatory Com- Electricity Regulatory Commission, has played a lead role in actually reviving uh, sorry, what's the Orissa debacle? Just wanted to clarify for the audience. Okay, sorry. Okay, Orissa basically was the first state to actually privatize through PPP mode uh, its distribution companies, and unfortunately, the year in which they did this uh, uh, PPP, uh, they gave three uh, distribution companies to uh, BSES at that time, which became Reliance later, and uh, also an American company called AES, uh, one discom. But what happened is in the same year, you had the super cyclones. You had actually two super cyclones, which at Orissa is a coastal state. It was super cyclone completely demolished the entire transmission infrastructure of coastal Orissa. And, uh, you know, when you have a disaster like that, it's the government that should step in. And I think I go back to what uh, Dr. Rahul had said earlier, that the government is the final backstop. So you can't simply say you are a private sector, you are responsible for setting the entire system back when they have just taken over the system you got a you know a, a super cyclone. You can't play around with this and say no. The private sector should do. They cannot do. Nowhere in the world they do. It's the government, even in US, 
that does those things. So it failed there to basically terminate those contracts and get it back to government. And therefore, that was a debacle that happened. But what the, what OERC did is they had something called distribution franchises to help them manage the billing collection uh, processes at the grassroots level. The DFs were basically uh, less funded. They could not actually put in the capex required to upgrade the transmission distribution systems that are required. So now they've gone back to PPP. Now, 2021-22, all the, the four major uh, distribution company areas in Orissa have gone back to PPP with Tata's playing the role. We have talked to basically CESC as well, which also has got a lot of distribution franchises, also torrent power. The government has already taken a decision, an implemented decision to privatize in union territories, the distribution companies. For example, Dadra Nagar heavily has already happened. Chandigarh has also happened. Now they can do that in union territories. In the states, it is the responsibility of the states but what I feel to depoliticize the issue, the regulatory commissions have a duty under the act to advise the government. In fact, when the Electricity Act 2003 happened, a lot of this was actually, a lot of this act and many of these things happened in the Administrative Staff College of India. And so to again depoliticize, to bring people on board, to have a consensus on how to do things, I think that was a landmark reform. I think we, as a, you know, we need to do this. And I think PPP, what we find, is one way in you can start off in some states you don't have to do all overnight so let us start off with some pilots uh, in some in some states and i think that is very much required to basically realize many of those benefits if you look at the private discoms many of the things that dr rahul just mentioned in terms of you know smart grids etc are better implemented even rooftop solar are better implemented by the private distribution companies because they look at how do they, how they can reduce their costs of serving so the we consumer. need greater participation of of private sector and you know associated reform. So just to, the last closing question. Now that we mentioned regulators, is shouldn't we just have better reg or shouldn't the nuclear regulation industry? I mean, we have our nuclear the AERB and you know the the boards like that. It seems to be completely dominated by you know the existing atomic energy establishment. Should there be reforms per se in the nuclear regulatory board itself, or do you think the existing system is perfect? Probably. Uh, that's our last question, so Dr. Srikant, very quickly in a minute, and uh, and Dr. Tongya too, please, if you could weigh in. Yeah, a good, a good question. Actually, if you recall, in 2015, I think there was a move to, there was a bill in parliament to basically make a AERB an independent uh, uh, regulator, uh, free of DAE. It has not happened uh, due to various reasons. And uh, so the whole question is, I am not averse to that. But what we also have to see is the performance of our regulator has been very excellent. I know people who are serving in the regulatory commission, very dedicated people and very independent people. And uh, actually, I can tell you the NPCL people are quite fearful of them because uh, they actually, you know, uh, some of the delays that you have seen in the power in the nuclear power sector are mainly because the regulator has said, no, unless this problem is solved to my satisfaction, I will not allow you to proceed to the next stage of the project. So, so therefore, they have been quite, uh, uh, what I would say is firm in the regulatory mandate. They have been quite good. But obviously, what has happened is, today, as you, I think we mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, we have got actually the civilian and the strategic side slightly mixed up. So if we want to make it nuclear power grow, I think the civilian nuclear power will be much, much, much bigger than the strategic side of the, or the reserve side of nuclear power. I think at that point of time, we need to basically have a look at 
what the regulator should be and maybe we should have a nuclear regulatory commission or atomic energy regulatory board which is independent at that stage but one thing what i would like to point out is intermediate intermediate if you look at we have looked at the data of emissions from nuclear power sector the problem with the nuclear power sector is though operationally they are excellent in terms of if you look at their emissions track record and all that uh, ultra low one by hundredth of the safe limits but the problem is that data transparency is not there they submit the returns to the moef they submit returns to the pollution control board under the air act or the environmental moef or the environmental protection act now if they are more transparent with the data public perception will also be improved and there is no reason for them to fear because from what all data i have seen their performance is excellent so more transparency is what i think the regulator can do right now so this is something that is you know when we look at you know the whole thing public acceptance and that's why jacob you are actually holding this that's very important and i think the transparency of the npcil civilian reactors can be improved manifold without any problem at all i think they should the regulatory board should actually mandate that got dr raul uh, you want to weigh on this i think um, the legislative or statutory separation of aerb is distinct from the bigger need which is do they have independence of objectives skills manpower etc and as dr shrikant pointed out as of now they are reasonably independent but maybe we want to strengthen that up by making it statutory because you look at the counter which is the electricity regulatory uh, commission systems they are not as independent and certainly less so at the staff level because some of their staff are even coming on deputation from the same people that you're regulating so that's a much bigger issue to me so you need one this independence through enablement so that you have sufficient budget so you have sufficient uh, independent manpower permanently so the second question for aerb right now their focus has typically been on safety on design which is absolutely important can or should they also look beyond it to look at things of supply chain risk of economics there's so many other aspects that go into the ecosystem of nuclear i don't know to what extent they have loci or a role to play obviously some of that is also by electricity regulators but that only happens at the buying time that only happens at the utility level where they'll say here's the ppa and let me be very clear there is no way any electricity regulator can really question the tariffs that come out of this because where are you going to get a bid this is not something that's a commodity that you can just say get me three bids or five bids uh, that's not how this works so we i think regulation is not the weakest link in our system but it's one that can certainly not just be strengthened but also get redirection to really spur along this system to the point where we can make a fairer claim are you ready to sink or swim it, we're not there yet we've been operating to thus far on narrower siloed lenses siloed views we need to break free from that if we want nuclear to really scale and grow quickly cost effectively but once that's there then someone else externally will also need to make a uh, call on at what point do we need to have what changes in the system great thanks dr tongya and again now we we nearly one hour so uh thanks a lot dr srikant dr tongya for being for participating in this extremely enriching uh, discussion and uh, thank you very much again thank you jacob thank you for this important discussion